0: Matthew chapter 28. We're in this brand new series that we're calling Missio Christi. We started it last week. Missio Christi is Latin, of course, for the mission of Christ, for the sending of Christ. Why are we using Latin? Because it just sounds cooler than English in this case. Missio Christi sounds cooler than the mission of Christ. So we're going with that. And the title of the message this week is Essence. Essence. Essence meaning intrinsic nature or indispensable quality of something and we're talking about the essence of God and for this series we've got our artist back in action like he was in a previous series yeah praise the Lord for him This is uh, a painting of the Trinity. I have no idea if that's what the Trinity looks like. I don't think anybody knows, but he did an awesome job. It's incredible. Later on, after the message, run up on stage and take a close look at it. It's just beautiful in its detail. Very much from the early chapters of the book of Revelation, if you're familiar with that. It looks just like that in my mind's eye. So our artist did a great job. We're going to be talking about the essence, the intrinsic nature indispensable quality of God and how it pertains to us being on mission. Let's pray first. God, we thank you for you. We thank you for your love in our lives. Thank you for the work of the cross that has freed us, redeemed us, and renewed us. Thank you that through the cross, you've invited us into your life, into your very nature, 2 Peter 1 says that we become partakers of the divine nature, participants in the divine life of God. Lord, we ask that that wonder wouldn't it be lost on us this morning, but you would enliven our hearts, that the word of God, its precepts, its truths would be alive and would be like a fire and a hammer, as Jeremiah said. And that Jesus, you would give us a greater understanding of you and your glory and the nature of God. Holy Spirit, we ask that you come and teach us Jesus said, you're the teacher of all things. Come and instruct us. We ask together that you would please anoint my mind and my lips that every syllable that comes from this mouth would be from your throne and for your glory. We ask that together. That you do a good and lasting work in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, essence intrinsic nature, indispensable quality of something or someone in this case, namely God. Here's what we want to say. God in his very essence, in his very nature is a missionary God. In his very essence, God is ascending God and we'll unpack what that means in a moment. Immediately when we say that, we got to realize then that we as the church as image bearers of God, are made and remade through the cross and meant to be on mission. Because God is a missionary God. We've been made in his image, remade in his image through the cross. We are also then meant to be living life on mission. Jesus invites us into that in our text here in Matthew 28. Look at the words of Christ starting in verse 18. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, notice it's singular, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here we have this familiar passage. Uh, We know it historically as the great commission. By the way, it's not the great suggestion. It's not an option. It's a commissioning. What does it mean to be commissioned? It means to be given authority to act on behalf of another. Christ says, all authority has been given to me. And then he tells us to go. He gives us authority. He authorizes us to act in the world on his behalf, according to his nature, baptizing people in the name, the nature, the identity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the triune God. So what Jesus does here then is present the essence and the authority of Christian mission as being based solely on the triune nature of God. We go teaching and baptizing in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus bases the essence and the authority of all Christian mission on the triune nature of God. He says he has authority. He gives it to us. He says to do mission in his name. It's important as Christians when we are on mission, as we're supposed to be in all of life, that we recognize the authority that we've had. In whose name or by what power do you do this, is what they asked the early disciples in the book of Acts. And this world is asking us that question like never before because we live in a thoroughly pluralistic culture. What does that mean? We live in a culture that recognizes more than one ultimate principle. Not everyone in our society agrees that the God of the Bible is the ultimate principle, so to speak. But we have a lot of competing truth claims, a lot of popular and competing truth claims in society. We live in a pluralistic culture. So it's important that we recognize by whose authority, in whose name, and by what power we go on mission. Because we're supposed to be baptizing the nations. What does it mean to be baptized? It's a change of allegiance. It's a change of identity from whatever your previous identity and allegiance was to your allegiance being to the triune God of the Bible, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we call all nations to this, whether they recognize Islam as the ultimate principle or Buddha or if it's a new age thing or whatever it might be, We are calling every man and woman and culture to a change of allegiance is what baptism is. And and if you do that, you better know in whose name, by what power and what authority we're doing that. And we do that solely according to the essence, the nature of God as being triune. God as being triune. To be a Christian is to be, I'm going to drop a big word on you, to be a Christian is to be a Trinitarian. Isn't that a weird word? It sounds like Star Trek or Star Wars or something silly like that. To be a Christian is to be a Trinitarian. That simply says we believe in the Trinity. We believe that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. The Shmad's called in Hebrew. We believe as Deuteronomy 6.4 says that God is one and yet we see that Jesus here expressly reveals God as being three in one. Baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Christianity is distinctly Trinitarian. We recognize a triune God as the only true God and we base the meaning of all existence on him and his essence. But what does it mean that God is triune? What are we saying when we say we are Trinitarians, which is distinctly Christian? Nobody else in the world could say that. What does it mean that God is a trinity, that he's the great three in one? Well, first of all, we'll mention a couple of things that it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Christians believe in three gods. That's not what we're saying. That's something called tritheism, not Trinitarianism. We don't believe in three gods, nor do we believe in three modes of one being. That's called modalism. You know that favorite old analogy of the Trinity that everyone uses, which no analogy of the Trinity quite gets at it, but this is a particularly bad one, where we say the Trinity is like H2O. It can exist in the form of water or steam or ice. That doesn't teach biblical Trinitarianism. That teaches modalism because it's not all three at once for eternity, even if it was all three at once for an instance, which some scientists say there's a, a moment where it can be, but it's not all three for eternity. We don't believe in tritheism. That denies the simplicity of God, the unity of God, and we don't believe in modalism. That denies the the plurality of God, right? Modalism says that sometimes God's a father, sometimes he's a son, sometimes he's the spirit. So what does it mean then that God is triune, that he's a triunity? It means this. It means that he is a plurality within unity a plurality within unity. It's to say this, God is a plurality of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a plurality of persons, but a unity of essence or being. Three distinct persons, but one essence or being. When we talk about God, we could say that there is only one what in God one what one essence or being but that there are 3 who's in God 3 who's persons or ways of being what does it mean to be God God is one what one essence one being but 3 who's father son and holy spirit now this is what Jesus was referring to when he says in John 10 I and the father are one that there is this singular essence that is God. They are one essence, one what? But don't misunderstand that. Jesus was not saying that they are the same person. The Trinity has distinction of persons of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father, and neither are the Spirit. We kind of get sloppy with our language when it comes to this. We especially hear this kind of in ourselves when we're praying sometimes. You know what I mean? We'll be praying and we'll say, oh, dear Lord, Jesus, Father, Jesus, Father, I just asked that you would. Now, God knows what we're saying and we know what we're saying, but it's just a little bit sloppy language because Jesus isn't the Father and the Father isn't Jesus and neither are the Spirit. Three distinct persons, one essence. Three who's, one what. Now, it is proper to say, Jesus is God. That's a proper thing to say. One time I was with a friend and we were driving down the street and we saw some um, Mormons. And you could always recognize the Mormons because they got their little white shirt on and they're riding their bikes down the road. And uh, this person is real spunky and she rolled down her window and she yelled, Jesus is God! Because they don't necessarily believe in Jesus the same way that we do, right? And so we, it's proper for us to say, Jesus is God. It's proper for us to say the Father is God. It's proper for us to say the Spirit is God. Because each of them is God in that divine essence, being, nature. But it's not quite proper to say God is Jesus. See, Jesus equals God, but God doesn't equal Jesus. God equals Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It might seem like a trivial thing, but it's not at all. And as a church, we are entrusted to safeguard the grammar of Christian doctrine as gleaned from Scripture. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. Equally God, equally co-eternal. But God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we realize as we're talking about these things, and I could tell from your confused little faces that the Trinity is a mystery and and we just don't understand the fullness of God. Any God that we could understand with our finite minds would be less than God. Isn't that true? I mean, do we really expect to understand everything about the nature of God? We want God to be just like us We want him to be just like us, but but he's not. God is not like us. G.K. Chesterton said, if God were simple enough for me to understand, he wouldn't be great enough to meet my needs nor worthy of my worship. Any God that we could fully comprehend is no God at all. So the Trinity is a mystery, but it's not a contradiction. It's not unclear. It's clear in scripture. It's just mysterious to us how the three could truly be one. And yet that's clearly the teaching of the Bible. Now, having said all that, my goal is not to articulate a doctrine of the Trinity or to defend it. Here's my goal in the sermon, is to get us to begin to apply it in our daily lives. We often just think Trinity, mystery, oh, and just kind of move on from it. But what we ought to do is apply to our daily living the reality of the triune nature of God. Now, we're in this series, Missio Christi. We're talking about mission, being on mission with Christ. And it's imperative that when we talk about mission, we talk about the essence of God or the nature of God because mission comes from the essence or the nature of God. It has its origin, its genesis, its beginning, its movement from the very nature of God. Uh, Missiologist George Peter says this, It is in the very being and character of God that the deepest ground of the missionary enterprise is to be found. You see, what we're supposed to be doing as Christians living on mission, it comes from who God is. It's not a cosmological thing. It's not about the world and and the stuff going on in the world. It's not an anthropological thing. It's not about humanity and the plight of humanity. It's not a church thing. It's not about what the church wants to do. It has to do with the very essence and nature of who God is as being the great three in one. And so what we understand then is that mission is primarily an activity of, uh, excuse me, mission is not primarily an activity of the church. It is rather an attribute of God. We need to make that paradigm switch. Mission is not merely an activity of the church. It's an attribute of God. One theologian says, it's not the church that has a mission of salvation to fulfill in the world. It is the mission of Christ, the Missio Christi, that includes the church. So, if mission is essentially God's mission based on God's essence then the Trinity is foundational to our understanding of how we live a life on mission. And so one of the ways then that we can begin to apply the essence of God, the nature of God, is to think about the social or relational aspect of the Trinity, okay? How can we apply the Trinity to our daily lives? By starting to think about the social or the relational aspect of the essence of God. And here's where we start with that in our thought process. We have this statement in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. God is love. Everybody knows this one, right? God is love. Foundational to what we believe. The world would like to say love is God. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God is love. Now we need to think about what that means a little bit. What does that mean for the nature of God? What does it mean that God, in essence, is love? Well, before anything else was, God was, right? We believe in the preexistence of God. We believe in the eternality of God. He always was. And we believe in the eternality of all the members of the Godhead, that the Father always was, the Son always was, and the Spirit always was. Before anything else was, God was. This means that God has always existed In community. Okay, think about this now. God has always existed as a community. He's not known or has ever been known outside of being a community. Here's why God is love. Love must have an object, love must have an opportunity, love has to have an action, an expression. A direction. Love is between two people. We can talk about it differently. We can talk about self-love and and loving ourselves, but that's not the way that the Bible talks about God is love. God always has an object, an expression, an action, a communication. C.S. Lewis explains. He says, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words, God is love, have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. Christians believe that the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. So then, God is love, dictates the fact, confirms the fact that God exists in a community. And one of the ways that we begin to think about this is through a paradigm called the social trinity. There's lots of ways to think about the trinity and apply the trinity. But let's think about the idea, the social trinity, God existing in relationship within the trinity, right? In community, one theologian says, in God's threeness, God is related to himself. Here's why this is important, to look at God socially. Because it puts the emphasis on the dynamic nature of God's life. It puts the emphasis on the outgoing The outreaching, the dynamic nature of God's life and love. In other words, God is not static. There's always going on inside of the Godhead. This love, this community, this relationship, this communication. You guys have heard me drop this phrase on you before. Inter-Trinitarian communication. We love that one, right? It sounds so freaky. Inter-Trinitarian communication. It means that within the Trinity there's communication and we could talk about intertrinitarian love. Within the Trinity there is love between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is not new ground. This is not unfamiliar to us. Throughout the Gospels we see Jesus professing that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. Throughout the Gospels we see Jesus communicating with the Father. Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. To whom did he pray? To whom was he communicating? The Father. This is not new ground to us. This is familiar. And so, one commentator says, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit enjoy a dynamic life together, glorifying and loving one another. The threeness of God reminds us not to think of God as static or as individual, rather... We must think of God as eternal, dynamic fellowship. Now, stick with me. Some of you are not sticking with me. Stick with me. Here's what this means. This understand this. Uh, excuse me. Informs our understanding of the statement, "God is love," because what we see then in the outworking of God's love is that it's active. It's communicative, it's communal, it's never static, it's always reaching out. What we see in the Trinity is mutual submission, deference, giving of glory to the other, reaching out at all times. Pseudo-Dionysus, who's a sixth century theologian, says, love does not permit the lover to rest in himself. It draws him out of himself so that he may be entirely in The beloved. And Jesus says in John 17, 21, that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The love of God reaches out to be entirely in the beloved. Isn't it interesting that the Bible says, for God so loved the world and that we are called the beloved of God. This love of God is always reaching forward. And what we see in the gospels that we'll get to next week and spend a few months in is this eternal movement of God, this movement of God and love that has always existed within the Trinity, breaking into the time and space continuum through the incarnation. And so what we see is this love of God manifest in human history. And we're told expressly in the Gospels that the Father loves and glorifies the Son, that the Son loves, glorifies, and obeys the Father, And that the Spirit glorifies the Son and is a gift of the Father who is sent by both the Father and the Son. And what we also see then in the Gospels is this intense radical focus on other within the Trinity. And this ought to inform the way that we do relationships. This intense focus on other. You see, the Father tells us in the Gospels to look at and listen to his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So we look to the father and the father would have us look to the son. And then the son, as we look to the son and listen to the son, the son says, wait for the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter one, tarry in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high, the promise of the father. We look to the Father. He says, look and listen to the Son. We look and listen to the Son. And he says, wait for the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit comes and glorifies Jesus, it says in the Gospel of John. So there is this continual pointing to the other, a mutual submission, a desire to glorify the other, a humble deference to the other. What we see in the Trinity is a circle of love, honor, and preference. What this illustrates to us is the essence of God, the very nature of love. Since God is love, then God is on mission. That's his very nature because love reaches out of itself. Because God is love, God is on mission. It's the nature of love to go out of itself, to be other-centered, not self-centered, to reach outward, not always be inward. And so this communal Love affair, this inward love relationship of the Trinity flows outward in outreach to humanity. That's what mission is. The love of God going forward for the glory of God. And it stems from this inward love that then reaches outward. Now, we are created in the image of God, right? And there's a lot of ways we could talk about that, and and you probably don't want me to. There's a lot of ways we could talk about we're created in the image of God. It doesn't mean how we look, right? That's not what it means. We try to create God in our image, but we are created in the image of God. But here's what I want to say about that for a moment. Through sin and through the fall, that image of God in us has been marred. Through sin and the fall, the image of God in us is marred. But through the cross of Jesus Christ, when we are born again, we are remade in the image of God. What was marred is restored. We are new creations. What happens through the cross is that we are remade and reoriented according to the nature of God, the essence of God. And we become then redeemed image bearers. Bearing the image of God once again, having been restored, redeemed, we are redeemed image bearers. And what we want to do then as redeemed image bearers is capture the essence of God in our daily lives. The nature of God. We want to be on mission Because God is a missionary God. We want to see ourselves as sent because God is a sending God. We want to love others because God is love. And so mission, representing Jesus in the world, has its origin in the heart of God. And God is the foundation of sending love. And this is the deepest source of mission. When we are saved... We enter into that life of the triune God. First Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 4 says we become partakers of the divine nature. We participate in the triune nature and relationship of God. Part of our understanding of what it means to be saved is that Christ is in us. Isn't that right? Colossians 1 the hope of glory, Christ in us. Part of our grammar for knowing that we're saved is that Christ is now in us. Beyond that, we also have the grammar of the New Testament that we are in Christ. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In John 17, verse 21, Jesus prays that as the father is in him and he is in the father, that we would be in them. So Christ is in us. And we are in Christ. How are we to understand that? What does that mean for our daily lives? I'll tell you what that means. To be in Christ and have Christ in us means that we participate in the life of Christ, the Trinity, Trinity is participatory. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit always engage with one another. We are invited into that life, into that love, into that reality through the cross of Jesus Christ. And for Christ to be in us and us to be in Christ means we now participate in the life of Christ. And the question we need to start asking ourselves as Christians is, am I daily participating in the essence of God, the life of God, the life of Christ? And to put it rather harshly, because the very essence of God is that he's a missionary God, one could say that there is no participation in Christ without being on mission with Christ. There's no participation in Christ without being on mission with Christ because the very essence of God is this love that reaches outward. Now, that's hard for you pew potatoes. That's difficult for you lukewarm Christians where there's no hint of mission in your life whatsoever. And yet you would say, I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. Well, one could almost say there's no participation in Christ unless we're on mission with Christ. Now, I might back up and say it in a way which is less confrontational because if I don't, the staff will get mad at me. So... To say in a way which is less confrontational, mission is not something we can do outside of God. Rather, it is a participation in the life of the triune God. As the missiologist David Bosch says, to participate in mission is to participate in the movement of God's love toward people. Since God is a fountain of sending love. Are we participating in God's love as it reaches out to the world around us, in our families, with our friends, in our schools, in our workplaces? Jesus prayed that this would be a reality in our lives. In John 17, 26, he prays to the Father and says, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so we are baptized into this Trinitarian relationship, become partakers, participants in the divine nature of God, and then because his nature is to be outreaching, because he's a missionary God, then the mission of God is to flow through us to the world around us. And we need to begin to see ourselves as sent, just as we are to see God as sender, sent, and sending. God is all of these things. He's a sender, He's sent, and He's sending. For example, the Father can be seen as the first missionary because in love, He reaches out to create the world. And then He sends the Son to redeem the world. So God the Father sends the Son, he was a first missionary, but he sends the Son so the Son we could see as a second missionary, who redeems all of humanity and creation through his life, death and resurrection and exaltation. The Father is the first missionary, but then he sends the Son, the Son becomes a second missionary, but then the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. And we can see the Holy Spirit if we want as the third missionary who was sent by the Father and the Son to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 17. And then the Spirit creates and empowers the church. And then the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit send the church together. And the church needs to see itself as the fourth missionary participating in the God who is sender, sent, and sending. We are the fourth missionary. We are an extension of the essence of God, the nature of God, as being love and triune. What this does is gives us a better impetus for living life on mission because it goes beyond being a command it's more than just obeying a command though obeying a command is good it's more than just serving in the church though serving in the church is good it's more than just dealing with the plight and the needs of humanity though that's good it's a deeper impetus it's actually participating in the life and the love and the essence of god so we're we're freed from the drudgery of commands And we're brought into the reality of life. And we recapture through that our sense of sentness. And when we join God on mission, we're connecting with the very essence of God in a much deeper way and deeper level than when we merely see ourselves as doing things for God. You see, we want to move beyond doing things for God into the realm of doing things with God. And then our missionary activities are only as authentic as they are true participation in the mission of God. Here's what we need to begin to discover. What is God doing around me? We have a theology that said God is always reaching out. God is love. God is a missionary God. He's sending, sent, and sender. So then that that informs our worldview. We then believe that God is doing something around us. And my family... God's doing something in the life of my kids, in the life of my coworkers, in my community, in my nation, in the nations. God is doing something. What this means for us practically tomorrow is can we begin to identify what God is doing? Can we have our eyes open? Can we start to open our own eyes to see what God is up to and join with God? Or do we not believe that God is doing things around us? Last week, I suggested that we start to read our Bibles missiologically. That is, we start to read our Bibles with the perspective of mission from Genesis to Revelation. Reading it instead of um, an answer book and dealing with my problems and my drama, start to read it as what has God done before history and history and in the future, what is God up to? What I want to suggest now is that we not only read our Bibles that way, but we read life that way. We start to read life missiologically. We start to ask, what is God doing? We start to see situations differently. We start to see that God is imminent, working within, in the midst, active because of his essence and his nature. Once we start to see mission that way, it changes, and Christianity gets more exciting. And we start to ask different questions. I'm going to finish with this quote. It's from a book called Ministry in the Image of God by Stephen Siemens. I've recommended it to you guys several times. Ministry in the Image of God. Just listen to this quote. It's kind of long, but follow me. I'm going to end on this. I'm going to read the quote because he says it better than I could if I just plagiarized it. He says this. Understanding the Trinitarian basis for mission is crucial because it enables us to ask the right question. Confronted with an absence of passion for mission, anybody ever have that? An absence of passion for mission? No, most of you are on fire for mission. It's just me. Oh, okay, good. It's just me. I shouldn't. Even, I'll read it for myself. <laughs> Confronted with an absence of passion for mission, we often ask, "What must we do to dispel our apathy?" Am I the only one who's apathetic? What must we do to dispel our apathy, to rekindle our passion for renewed mission involvement? So, we issue calls to prayer and devise strategies to motivate ourselves and others. Of course, good may come from our efforts, but our approach, get this, but our approach is wrong-headed, Because it's based on the faulty assumption that mission is primarily about what we do for God. It's based on the faulty assumption that mission is primarily about what we do for God. If, however, he continues, we begin with the assumption that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are already passionately engaged in mission to the world, then the question gets reframed. Instead of what do we have to do to stir up our passion and increase our engagement and mission, it becomes what's hindering us from joining in the mission in which the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are already engaged. And that's what we need to ask ourselves as responsible Christians. Is there anything that's hindering us from joining in the life of God, the work of God, the mission of God around us? Is there anything that that, that would keep me from seeing and hearing what the Spirit says, what God is doing, where he's moving, and the coworker that sits next to me every day We need to ask ourselves these questions. Deal with anything that would be in the way and let Christianity get exciting by realizing Christ in us and us in Christ. Amen? Amen. Lord, we ask that you would help us with that. As we ask these questions, we ask that Holy Spirit, you would kindly and wonderfully deal with our hearts. Lord, deal with my heart, the things in my life that would keep me from seeing your mission, your glory, your passion, your love at work around me. I want to join in that. We want to be a part of that. And so deal with our selfish proclivities. Deal with our ungodly distractions. Deal with my ungodly distractions, Lord. Give us a bigger sense of your essence and your glory among the nations. Reveal more of yourself to us, God, that we would have a better impetus to join with you in what you're doing in the world. Prayer team will be up here to your left. If you need help with anything that's going on at all, they're there. If you're sick and you want prayer, they're there. If you're struggling, they're there and they're mighty in prayer. And let's get on our faces before the Lord. You can come forward and communion is here, but let's do real business with God now. Let's really seek him and let him deal with our lives.